Last week we started a new sermon series on the New Testament book of 1 John. And we looked at the first four verses of 1 John and they were focused on getting to the truth about God. That we need to get the truth about God right. And John, the disciple John, emphasized firsthand his eyewitness knowledge of Jesus. That he was someone who was there, who saw, who heard, who touched Jesus. And so he wanted to make sure they understood the truth about God. But in our verses today, he wants us to make sure we understand the truth about ourselves. That we get the truth about ourselves right. That we need to make sure we are not self-deceived. And the biggest issue when it comes to ourselves and self-deception is sin. What is sin and what is the truth about sin and how it affects people? John is especially concerned with how sin affects Christians. How do we think about our own sin? So with that in mind, I want us to turn to 1 John. It's near the end of the Bible. 1 John chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 5 in chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 2. So eight verses in all. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 through chapter 2, verse 2, as we continue here. In John's letter, hear the word of the Lord. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken to us and your word reveals. It shines light into our lives. And we pray today, Lord, that your light would shine through your word and that you would use me in spite of my own sin and weakness to proclaim faithfully your word and that we would hear it and the word would go forth in the power of the spirit to change us so that we would see the truth about ourselves, about our sin, our savior, and our call to godliness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the big question I want us to wrestle with today is how should we as Christians think about our sin? For those of you who might not call yourselves Christians, how should Christians be thinking about their sin? Should they have their fingers out pointing or what should be our attitude about our sin as Christians? 
So first we need an awareness of sin. We also need a remedy for our sin. And finally, we need an appropriate attitude towards our sins. We need an awareness. John begins this section here in verse 5 saying that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. And that makes sense. We can understand that there is no sin or evil in God. After all, we know in Star Wars that the bad guys are on the dark side. And the good guys are on the light side. And so we understand light and dark and good and evil. But John here is primarily not thinking about good versus evil. He's thinking about what light does. What is the function of light? Light reveals. Light reveals the truth about what is in the darkness. It's why our cars have headlights, so we can see when we're driving at night. It's why our children have nightlights in their room, so that they can know that they're still in the safety of their room. It is not some scary, monster-filled place. It's why we say to people, man, did you get dressed in the dark this morning? Because it seems like they don't really have an awareness about what they are wearing. That light reveals the truth that is hidden in darkness. That's what God does. John here says that God is light. That there is nothing hidden in God. There are no lies in God. Nothing hidden from him. That everything is revealed for what it is in him. Including the truth about us. And that's what John is focusing on here. That truth about us. The truth about sin. As we mentioned last week, apparently there was a divisive group that John's readers were having to battle with and being troubled by. That some people had left the group of Christians and were teaching some wrong things about sin. And John describes their beliefs with three sayings in verses 6, 8, and 10. He starts each of those with, if we say, or in the NIV, if we claim He's saying that these people are claiming to say these things. And John is saying that all of these things are lies. They're darkness. It's not the truth. And each of those three statements are different ways of saying the same thing. And it's that we do not have sin. That seems like a pretty bold claim. We do not have sin. I mean, walking around saying, I don't need a savior. I'm good enough on my own. I'm a good person. Jesus didn't need to die for me. And we rightly look at them and go, you're crazy. That's wrong. You are a sinner. You're walking in darkness. God has revealed the truth about your sin. But instead of us moving past this and saying, that's a problem other people struggle with, darkness can be more subtle than that. And so in more subtle ways, we can be unaware of our sin. That we can think, I don't have sin in more subtle ways. I want us to point to four of them. Four subtle ways that are less obvious than just, I don't have any sin. First, we may think something is just not a sin. We may agree that we're sinners who continue to sin, but we just think that particular action or attitude is not a sin. Maybe no one's ever told us it was a sin. Or maybe we think the Bible is unclear or Maybe we just think the Bible's wrong about something. We see this in our culture today a lot with a lot of churches coming out and saying that homosexuality is not a sin. They're saying something that the Bible says is a sin, well, we don't think that's necessarily a sin. And yet, in spite of the culture's approval, 
Scripture teaches that homosexuality is indeed a sin. It's not some awful, unforgivable sin that's the worst thing in the world, but what makes it bad is we're saying it is not a sin. And any sin that we say is not a sin is darkness. So do we disagree with Scripture about what is and is not a sin? Or do we let Scripture shine the light of truth on us to help us understand what is a sin and what is not a sin? So we can just simply think something's not a sin. A second subtle way we might say we have no sin is that we may rationalize our sins. We recognize that we sin, but we are ready with our inner defense attorney to defend our sin for some reason. A common ethical quandary is given about whether or not it is right to steal bread to feed a starving family. You can go to ethics class to figure that out. But we do it in other ways that are really less of a quandary and more of a defense. You know, is looking at pornography really that bad since I'm not really hurting anyone? Is yelling at my kids excusable because really it's the only way they're going to listen? Is not visiting and spending time with a loved one with dementia permissible because, I mean, they wouldn't know if I was there? Are we rationalizing sinful behavior to excuse our sins for what we think are good reasons? That's one way we can say we have no sin. A third subtle way we may say we have no sin is we obey externally with a bad attitude. See, sin is not only outward actions, but inward attitudes and thoughts. And so when teenagers are commanded by their parents to obey and take out the garbage, they can obey and drag that garbage can, stomping and muttering under their breath. And they are obeying on the outside, and yet inside they hate you. Is that obedience? Now we can laugh at teenagers, but as adults, do we serve in the church or help our spouse with a sour attitude? Do we do so without the right heart? Obeying on the outside while harboring sinful attitudes on the inside. Are we aware not just of sinful actions, but also attitudes? That's a subtle way we can think we have no sin. It's, well, I took the trash out. Well, I served here and did this. A fourth subtle way we may struggle with sin or being aware of it is we may compare ourselves to others who we think are worse than us. Our New Testament reading from the Gospel of Luke was about this. That this Pharisee proudly thanked God. I mean, can you imagine this guy standing up there? Thank you, God, I'm not like him. That, that's, that is a bold thing to pray out loud. Thank you, God, I'm not like those bad people. And he felt better about his own sin because he knew of all the people praying at the temple that day, on the outside, he looked way better than that guy. And better than that guy, probably that one and that one too. He compared himself to others. After all, our sin could be worse. We could be like that person. And so we can minimize our sin, letting ourselves off the hook, because we feel like, you know, I'm at least an A-minus student. They're like C-minus and failing students over there. And so in that way, we can be unaware of our sin. In each of those ways, we can see subtle ways we think that we do not have sin. 
and they deceive us. We deceive ourselves and we live in darkness, but God wants us to be in the light, aware of our sins. He wants to bring our sins into the light, not to shame and condemn us, putting a scarlet letter on us, but to bring them into the light so that we might repent and find hope for forgiveness. And so with that in mind, John takes those three erroneous statements that said we have no sin, and he answers them with words of hope pointing to the remedy of our sin. And so just like the if we say statements said essentially the same thing, well, his answers all say essentially the same thing. Jesus is the remedy for our sin. See, many times we revert into thinking that our actions need to somehow fix our sins. That when we sin, we upset the scales of justice and we need to pile on some good deeds to get the scales back in order. And so we feel like I need to make it up to God that I was a sinner and so I got to do some good stuff. Maybe that helped. Or other times, I think the most common way we try to deal with our sins by ourselves is we wallow in a kind of sin sadness, a grown-up timeout, if you will that makes us think about how sorry we are for what we did. And eventually we feel like, okay, God's probably ready to let me out of timeout now. That I've felt bad enough and thought about myself badly enough and I really considered what I did. But in each of those circumstances, we are looking to what we have done to fix our sins. That's not what John is saying. John points us not to what we do, but to what Jesus has done and to God's character. Here's what we read in verse 9. If we confess our sins, he, that is God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John first points us to God's faithfulness. He says God is faithful. And we saw in our Old Testament reading from Exodus 34 how God revealed his character to Moses on Mount Sinai. And here's what he said. I am the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. See, God has promised to forgive sins. And God keeps the promises he makes. God keeps the promises we make. So when we sin, we don't look to our own actions. We look to the faithful God who keeps his promises, who has said, I will forgive your sins. We appeal to his promise and to his character, knowing that he is a forgiving and faithful God. But John doesn't only say that God is faithful. He says he is faithful and just. And this is where we struggle with how forgiveness works. How can a good God forgive sins? Doesn't he need to punish what is wrong in order to be good? After all, if we had a police department that forgave everyone for their speeding tickets, said, we pulled you over, but you know what? I'm not going to give you a speeding ticket. We'd be really excited when we got pulled over, if we ever got pulled over. But then we'd start to see cars flying up and down the roads. You'd be like, man, someone needs to do something about this. Oh, but we're forgiving the speeding tickets. But what if it wasn't just speeding tickets? It was DUIs. It was domestic violence, robbery, arson, and murder. 
can we forgive those things and still be just? Wouldn't we stop living in a just society that knew what right and wrong was? And so we see this tension of how can you forgive and be just in Exodus 34. See, God continued what he was saying. He said, I am a God who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. And so it sounds like God is saying, I am a forgiving God who will never clear the guilty. Wait, what? The guilty are the ones who need to be forgiven. So, I mean, if you're forgiving, but you're not forgiving the guilty, like, who are you even forgiving? And so it seems inconsistent here. How do we make sense of a God who forgives and yet doesn't clear the guilty and upholds justice? John shows us in verse 7, where he writes that it is the blood of Jesus that cleanses us for our sins. He goes on in chapter 2, verse 2, to use a really big word that makes my teeth whistle when I say it. Propitiation. See, it whistled a little bit there. Propitiation is a big Bible word that the NIV translates as atoning sacrifice because, well, we don't really ever say the word propitiation. But what it means is that Jesus' death satisfied the justice of God. That he didn't just come to us and rub us clean, making us holy of our sins, cleansing us. But he, in his death, took the wrath and justice for sin upon himself. So that God could pour out wrath against what is wrong. And Jesus died and suffered that wrath. So that evil could be punished, though the one who was punished was not evil. He was punished in our place. Propitiation gets at why Jesus had to die. Why God couldn't just let us know, hey, y'all are forgiven. He had to punish what was evil. And that's what we see in Jesus. It's why we look to his blood. And so our forgiveness is not based on what we do. It's based on what Jesus has done for us. And his death was for all our sins, past present and future. It is for the sins of the whole world. It is not just for Jews or for Gentiles or for Americans and everybody else who ain't American. It is for all people that we all look to Jesus. And this remedy for sin is fundamental to the Christian life because we all sin. And so every week, every Sunday in worship, we have a time where we confess our sins together. And we do that every week, not because we're really traditional people who love tradition. We do it every week because the greatest tradition of humanity is that we've all been sinners. And so we all need to confess our sin. It's not that we really like liturgical services. It's that we know we are sinners. And every week we sin. Every day we sin. Every hour we sin. And we need to come to God and remind ourselves of the remedy. And so after we confess, we don't say amen and kind of go, did that work? But we hear the assurance of pardon, which was taken from our text today, that assures us that we do have forgiveness in Jesus, in his life, death, and his resurrection. So being a Christian and walking in the light is not about being perfect. Walking in the light is not living a perfect, sinless life. Walking in the light is knowing the truth about our sin. And knowing the truth about where we find hope, which is in Jesus.
But then what should our attitude be towards sin? Should we accept that it's part of life? Should we not worry about avoiding it because we've got Jesus? I mean, he's going to forgive it anyway. He can and will forgive any sin we ever commit. So let's just stop worrying about it and just kind of, oh, we sinned again. Let's, let's confess. What should our attitude be towards sin? Was my father-in-law likes to joke when I ask him what he taught about in Sunday school. He says, well, we talked about sin and how I'm against it. Well, we're talking about sin today, and I'm against sin. I am not pro-sin. You see, John also against sin. In chapter 2, verse 1, he writes this. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Despite the great promise of forgiveness we have in Jesus, John is saying, I, I don't want you to keep sinning, though. Try and live godly lives. He wants people to realize that, yes, we have sin, but we want to be free from it. The words he uses in here, like cleanse or purify, show us that he wants us to get rid of it. He wants sin to be gone. He wants us clean. See, there's a difference between having sin and being okay with sin. That we know we have sin, but we shouldn't be okay with it. We should want to be in the light and be holy like God. I remember when I was a teenager, uh, we went through a frustrating exercise in our home. Both of my parents were working, and they had three messy teenage boys living at home. And they, they didn't like that. Uh, and so instead of kicking us out, they hired two ladies who would come every other week and clean the house. And... The day before they came, our parents would come and tell us, you guys need to clean your room because the cleaners are coming. And we, we would, you know, cock our head like a dog and look at them and just be like, I'm sorry, say that again? You need to clean your room because the cleaners are coming. And we just didn't get it. But they're coming to clean. Why should I clean? They're, they're the ones who do it. Wouldn't they love to come and clean this? We didn't understand the point because we were selfish and dumb and dirty. We didn't realize it. But see, the cleaning was serving more than one function. Not only did our parents want us to live in a clean home, they wanted to show us that they valued cleanliness. That our parents hoped that one day these three filthy teenagers would be able to live in a home that was not characterized by dirty socks and potato chip crumbs. They wanted us to value cleanliness. And yet they also made sure that full cleanliness was provided. Similarly, God wants us to value righteousness. He doesn't want us to be content living in filth and then come to Jesus and say, hey, here's all the filth I made this week. Could you fix that? And then go back and make some more filth. God wants us to despise sin. He wants us to see the extent to which he went to forgive us our sin, and he wants us to love righteousness and to love to obey. He wants us to despise sin, even though he knows it's going to be a lifelong struggle for us. And that needs to be our attitude towards sin. We need to change our attitude towards sin to hate it, because God wants holiness, cleanliness, to be something we value. Not just individually, but as the church. He wants us all, all of his children, to be on the same page, being aware of our sin, 
knowing the solution for our sin, and having an attitude that hates sin. And when we are united in those things, we can have fellowship. That's what John says in verse 7. If we walk in the light as he, that is God, is in the light, we have fellowship, not with God, it says there, with one another. We do have fellowship with God, but that fellowship is also with one another. So when Christians are able to have a shared awareness that we are all sinners who need a Savior and we desire to sin no more, we can have true fellowship because we are all on the same page to answer the question, what is the truth about us? And without the same answer to the question, what is the truth about us, the church will fall into ruin If the church cannot agree on what is and is not a sin, there will be fracture. If the church cannot agree that sin is in the heart and not just in the actions, then the church will be filled with people who look good on the outside and yet are bitter and proud on the inside. If the church sees sinners in different classes, then there will be division and disunity in the church. But if the church is made of individuals who don't hide from the light, but are willing to walk into the light and let the light shine on us and our sins, and are willing to listen when a brother or sister says, I think there's some filth on you, and we both want to be clean, so can I help us clean that up and point us to Jesus? If we're willing to do that, then we can be in fellowship together because we are about the same things. And it's every single one of us. Just this past week, I had uh, one of you come into my office and offer some correction to me. He was concerned that I was doing something that might not be right, and he came and spoke to me in love and grace and truth, and it was wonderful. And every instinct in me wanted the defense attorney to just pop up and go, but wait, let me rationalize that. Well, wait, please, I've done that right. And yet we all need that light to shine on us, whether we are pastors, teachers, elders, doesn't matter who we are, men, women, parents, children, whatever. We all need the light to shine on us because without that light, there can be no fellowship. See, we need to walk in the light. And the light frightens us because in the darkness we can hide. In the darkness, the only one who knows our sin is us because we can feel it. We know it's there, yet in the darkness, no one else can see it. And so we worry about stepping into the light. We worry people might think of us badly. We worry what God will think of us if we step into the light. And yet what John says here is that the one who shines the light is our advocate in heaven. The one who pleads for us and gives us forgiveness. The very same God who exposes the truth about us offers us forgiveness. See, God is like a doctor who not only shows us the fatal, deadly disease, but also takes us to the operating room and heals us. It's in God's revealing light that we discover the truth about ourselves, the shared truth about ourselves, that we are more sinful than we can even imagine, and yet we are more loved than we could ever believe in Jesus. 
that he has atoned for our sins. And so we can confess our sins to God, knowing he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness and to give us the grace and strength with others to walk in the light and desire to live godly lives until the day when Jesus returns and sin is no more. And we all live in the light, in the light of God's glory. Let us pray for that day to come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, we pray that you will come soon. Jesus, come quickly so that sin is no more, so that we don't have to worry about hiding in darkness, for there will be no more darkness, for sin will be taken away and we will be fully glorified in Christ. But until then, O God, may the light of your word and the Spirit shine on us. And may we not hide from it, but may we know that there is mercy and forgiveness in you. And that we are all sinners. Every one of us. And we all can be corrected. And we all can offer correction in love. Lord, help us to see our sin. To confess it and find forgiveness. And to strive to live godly lives as your children. And the strength of Jesus and power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.